You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 21, Trauma. So today I'm joined in the studio with my dear friend, Matthew Rippey-Young, who is here today to talk to us about the topic of trauma. So Matthew, can you uh, tell our listeners what is it that you do? Uh, Well, I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice here in Ottawa. I've been working for almost 20 years now. It's kind of crazy. Lies, lies. We're only 18, right? Well, I know. This is. I was thinking about this today that we've known each other for like 25 years, and that's (sighs) how is that possible? Because we're 23. No, I know, right? We've gone, we've gone back. We've we've come from another dimension to reach you here in our studio in Ottawa. Benjamin Button. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so yes, so uh, our listeners, um, I've known Matthew. What did you say? Twenty. Twenty five. Yeah. Twenty five years. My God. Um, so Matthew and I both went to McGill uh, for undergraduate degree in psychology, and. Me being the extrovert that I am, uh, I noticed this equally extroverted human in uh, three of my classes, I think, right? Yeah. So we had intro psych, soch, sociology, right? No, we had, I think no. it was like uh, Canadian lit. Yeah. And, oh, no, yeah, well, I thought you meant sociology. Yeah, social psych. No. Social psych, yeah, yeah. yeah. So three of my classes out of five, which was unusual. Uh, so I walked up to Matthew in English and I said, hey, I think you're in my classes. <laughs> and he literally got up from his seat and started dancing. <laughs> I made a new friend. Yay. 25 years later, here we are. And, yeah. and that's when I knew uh, that, that this was going to be a good thing. But suffice it to say that Matthew and I then uh, pretty much, we followed each other throughout our, our psych degrees. Whereas Matthew focused, you focused more, you had more of clinical Esque courses like you you took abnormal and personality yes. psych, developmental. Um, whereas, right, and I focused more on the the biological psych. Um, but we we formed our we called ourselves the psych posse, right? Didn't well, we call yeah. Them? Well, did we call ourselves the because po- there was the other posse, the other four. Do you remember those girls that used yes. to sit in front of us all the time? Yes, yes. But yes. I think we were both sets of us were like a thing. In the department, we were a thing, yeah. And and then back in the day, we used to go to coffee shops and smoke cigarettes and study for hours on end. Yeah, back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah, no, we were we were healthy, right? Um, so what's really interesting is that both Matthew and I, uh, in spite of the fact that many people think that a psychology undergraduate degree is is not a useful degree, we both went the full the full mile. Uh, And whereas I went on to really focus in on understanding the biological basis of behavior and did my PhD in behavioral neuroscience, Matthew, following his undergraduate, went on and did uh, a master's in counseling psychology. Yeah. Is that the... Yeah. That's the degree Uh, at Northwestern. At Northwestern, yeah. And went the typical route, I would say, like most individuals that want uh, students that start in psychology do want to go on into some kind of therapeutic um, enterprise. And so, and, and the other interesting piece is that we've both 
um, developed an interest in understanding how trauma can I- inform the mind. Uh, and whereas uh, my work really looked at understanding how trauma sets up the brain and reorganizes the circuits that are implicated in things like stress and reward, how that sets up the individual to be more prone to things like uh, substance use disorders and depression depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, Matthew is the person that helps understand how the trauma, traumatic experience informs the mind and helps, can we say heal? Uh, yeah. Heard? Yeah, heal. Yeah. I would say healing happens. I mean, mm. well, it's funny. The longer I do the work, the more I think about, like, is it healing or is it we just move through? Like, not move on, but move through things. And I so, like that. yeah, like, so it's not like you go back to some state before the injury. Like, you know, I've got a big scar on my leg because I got hit by a car when I was 10. Uh, you know, I didn't break any bones, my leg's fine, but there's still a scar on my leg, right? And so I can walk fine, I run around. Mm. I guess I'm, you know, healed, but you can still see a big gash. I like that metaphor. So I guess what I'm interested in is if you can tell me, and of course our listeners, what, in your practice, is there like a typical client? Is there... You know, when, when you have somebody that has experienced trauma, how do they present? Uh, well, so there, I have a few streams. So I happen to see a number of first responders or veterans. And so mm-hmm. those kind of traumatic events uh, tend to be different than the more civilian types of people who come in for trauma. Uh, and I think about trauma in terms of big T and little t. Uh, you know, big T trauma is the times in which, you know, your personal, physical, emotional health is actually in danger of expiring. So these are like life and death experiences, uh, traumatic sexual assaults, uh, you know, things where you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm suddenly a Tori Amos song. Like, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. And then there's the little T traumas that are um, more like, you know, really upsetting events that happen in your day. You know, you are humiliated at work. Like, you're never going to die from being humiliated at work, but you might wish you could just in that moment have the universe open up, you fall in, it closes over, we done. Uh, So, yeah, so I see a variety of big T, little T. I would say more of the civilian kind of things. It's more sexual assault, childhood sexual abuse, uh, intense bullying, not like, not the regular name calling, but like the things that, Mm. you know, people are 35 and they're still talking about what happened in middle school, that kind of stuff. And then obviously like wartime, you know, or like traumatic losses. Sure. And then so is there kind of a you know, stepwise progression that you would work with that client? Uh, Is there a one-size-fits-all approach? Um, Are there typical things that you might get them to do or to think about to work through that trauma? Uh, Well, so, I mean, everything starts with a good assessment and figuring out uh, not only like what happened with the traumatic event, but also a more comprehensive mental health assessment and a, like a biopsychosocial assessment. So, you know, I ask people about their childhoods and their families that they grew up in, their past relationships, 
in addition to screening for other comorbid mental health issues. Uh, if you've got PTSD, it's not unusual to have another anxiety disorder or to have a mood disorder that goes along with it because PTSD can be kind of ravaging. <clears throat> so after the assessment stuff is done, uh, we kind of talk about, okay, well, so like, what are we going to do? Like, what would you really like to be different? Uh, for a lot of people, there's a ton of avoidance. There, you know, anxiety and trauma makes your world smaller. Uh, people hunker down, people retreat to their homes, uh, there are places they don't go, there are things that they don't do. And, you know, does everybody need to go to Kosovo? No. But some people can't go to their kids, like, Christmas pageant at the school because the experience is terrifying, of uh, being in a public place with a bunch of strangers. And even though they know that the likelihood of there being a shooter there is, you know, 0.003%, uh, the when they get triggered, I mean, their eyes enlarge, like their heart rate goes, all the traumatic responses happen, and they just can't be there. So we talk about, I talk often about with um, helping people reclaim parts of their lives. So some people can do that through exposure. Some people do that through talking and understanding how the traumatic event is connected to other parts of their lives. Uh, some people I do EMDR with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is, I think it's still, I kind of forget, but I think it's still controversial. Like some people still think it's like hooey, but uh, I've had some pretty good success with it. Yeah, I. Uh, it's interesting because I have had some people ask me about EMDR and initially uh, I was quite skeptical. It sounded like voodoo magic, uh, and for the <laughs> and you know, as as a as a trained scientist, we are trained to be skeptical of everything, right? Uh, and especially something that it's you know the basis of EMDR is you have a client either like alternatively tap on one leg while they're recalling a traumatic memory, or uh, you're getting them to move their eyes back and forth. If I'm not it started mistaken, with, or it started with eye movement but they've discovered any yeah. kind of bilateral brain stimulation can work. Right. So, I mean, because it's, you know, with trauma survivors to have, like, well, for me, for instance, to have some strange man wave their hand in front of your face really up close, like, yeah, doesn't eh. sound like the best day ever. So <laughs> yeah, uh, you can use they're... pulsers or tones to stimulate oh, right. each side of the body. Right. Or each side and of the then brain. so the, the theory is that, um, what you're doing is while you're recalling that traumatic memory, you're engaging certain circuits in the brain that then um, get confused when you try to reconsolidate that memory because of that alternate uh, brain hemispheric activation. Again, this is all theoretical. And therefore, the the traumatic memory, when it's reconsolidated or put back into that long-term memory storage, loses the emotional component of it. That's so you have still the episodic memory, so you don't lose the memory, no. but it doesn't have that same emotional valence. So again, that's my understanding. Again, I was skeptical. I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but we are seeing, um, clearly you see it in your practice, that some individuals benefit, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it's some people call it like free association that works. Uh, other people think that it's, it's just a different form of prolonged exposure, uh, and so the brain habituates. But, um, but yeah, in my practice, I've been surprised at, well, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised, because if I didn't think it would work, I wouldn't do it. But, right. but 
having some surprising, long-lasting results for people about things that really like rip them apart that now they can think about without the emotional intensity and you know they can they can move on they can move through they can feel better so what i'm hearing is that so you use either again it, it it's not a one size fits all it may no. be a, depending on the client's needs or or the combination of the the trauma plus whatever other manifestation of if, whether it's anxiety or depression but exposure therapy EMDR anything else that's in your toolbox that you might employ well it's also it's finding a place for the trauma in your life so mm-hmm. like lots of people just like want to excoriate the trauma like a tumor and be like okay well that never happened and I want to move on. And the thing is, is that's not the way life works. Uh, it's kind of like I used to describe it like cleaning out a closet. I had this closet in graduate school that I was always reorganizing. And because uh, I had too much stuff because I'm, you know, borderline hoarder. And I'm like taking, you know, I, you have to take everything out. And then you find a place, an organization system back inside the closet and you put the things back in. And so for a lot of people, making sense of their story uh, can also be very healing. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that, um, that take responsibility for aspects of their trauma uh, that has nothing to do with them. And it, it's kind of this inverted logic that if I was responsible for X, Y, Z, if I then caused my own trauma, well, then I know what to do to make sure that that never happens again. It's this real battle against the powerlessness, because that's part of, I mean, part of being traumatized is terror and powerlessness. And so, you know, I have very reasonable people that come in, but then it's like, well, if I hadn't done ABC, if I hadn't worn this outfit, if I hadn't been at this place, if I hadn't had a drink, uh, then I wouldn't have gotten assaulted. And, you know, like we don't go out and assault ourselves, like Mm-hmm. We're not responsible for that. And so helping people hear their story and figure out where it is that this fits on the inside and figuring out how to live with that. Oh, right. I was powerless and that's OK. Like I can move through that. Um, that often helps people kind of shake off that like, oh, I did this to myself or it's all my fault kind of stuff. So that then they can be more compassionate with themselves and move on and move through. So not everybody develops PTSD or, no. or some version of PTSD following a trauma, right? There are some people who, who may either be resilient altogether or who may have lesser, for lack of a better word, symptoms. Like, can you Yeah, can no, you it's not a yeah. fait accompli that, like, if X happens, you will then be traumatized. Mm-hmm. So some of the protective factors we know, I mean, like resilience, some people just roll with things differently. Some people, you know, never buy into the, oh, this, I'm responsible for this thing that I'm not really responsible for. They do much better. Uh, Also, so, I mean, diagnostically, you know, if you get, if something happens to you today and you start to show symptoms tomorrow, even if you show all the symptoms of PTSD, one of the criteria is that these symptoms have to have lasted for at least a month. Because it's normal to have a reaction after a traumatic event. Uh, we even have a different classification for it. It's called acute stress disorder. 
um, during that month, we like the research shows, if people are able to seek support, talk about what's going on, talk about their experience, they're much more likely to make sense of it in a way that works for them rather than making sense out of it in these maladaptive ways that reinforce symptoms. Um, That's really valuable advice. Really, it's value. You know, if any, certainly, I would want to know if I've experienced trauma. What what can I do now to to promote positive coping and to prevent onset of onset of PTSD? And some of that is beyond our control because there well, are yeah. obviously genetic factors and other environmental factors. But yeah. what I'm hearing is that you know talking it out, having that strong social support around you can protect against development of probably more problematic symptoms down the line. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this is the whole thinking behind the critical incident stress debriefing that you know often um, first responders have to go through. And a lot of first responders are like, oh, it's stupid, it's stupid, because you know they're used to seeing hard things every day. And I mean, in the both in the helping professions and for first responders, there's this idea that you know nothing is supposed to phase us. If something phases us, we haven't been trained right or we did something wrong. Um, but that's why they insist on them and make this critical incident and stress debriefing like a normal standing protocol. Because if you don't have a community in which to talk about things, then it just kind of festers from the inside out. Uh, and mm-hmm. people get sick. Like people get sick mm-hmm. from this. You know, and mm-hmm. so then they miss work, they stay home, they stay in bed, the, like the avoidance gets bigger, and then the problem blooms, unfortunately. Well, I think a lot of this is a hangover from previous generations where you didn't talk about your emotions, and yeah. particularly in male-dominated careers such as first responders, police, EMTs, um, firefighters, where, you know, it's it's repress, you know, we're, we're <clears throat> stiff upper lip, and now we know, uh, hey, guess what, that actually doesn't help. Um, for right. know, some people, maybe right. Some sure there might be some people that 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 works. I'm not discounting that, but for the great majority of the population, I would say when we try to pretend it didn't happen, or like you were saying, excoriate it like a tumor, this is maladaptive. Well, yeah. Like the thing is, because you don't then make sense of it, and so right, it really like your life gets cut into this before and after the event. And there's a wide gulf in between that you can't bridge. And so the talking, the processing, that helps you bridge so that this story, this traumatic event, or sometimes it's a collection of events, um, becomes the most important story in your life. And it simply isn't true. It's one of your stories. And so being able to talk about it, it usually is pretty protective. I mean, I would say... You know, I wouldn't say never that repressing mm. and locking down is a good idea. But, you know, I mean, we often see then the connections to substance abuse, right? Like, I don't want to feel this. So chug a lug, Donna. Like, this is what mm-hmm. happens is that people then look for other ways to reliably change how they feel, to reliably change how they think. And so, you know, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, all these things then become like ripe for the picking if people aren't able yeah. to process. 
Well, yeah, certainly that's my definition of addiction, substance use disorders, behavioral addictions. It, I don't think it's the disease. I think it's the symptom of yeah. the disease, symptom of something. And often it is, ex, you know, extreme post-traumatic stress disorder, um, un, you know, perhaps some differentiation of that, which includes that substance use um, uh, as a coping to yeah. mask the symptoms, to uh, cope with the symptoms, uh, it's it's gone unchecked. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, in our society, uh, we lack the compassion, many of us, uh, to acknowledge that somebody is not well and they're struggling. And we see somebody who is in very, very dire straits, and we judge and we blame and we shame. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from a lack of of awareness and ignorance around where the where individuals where they're where they've come from and where their stories have taken them uh, often with the the onset of traumatic incidences in childhood adolescence and beyond so on that note like are there in your practice do you see you know what are barriers to treatment are there individuals who you see not doing well, not being able to sort of, you know, reframe and, and place that traumatic episode in their in their story. Um, you know, are, are there personality traits? Are there are there social factors that you see that, per, you know, are really hampering or impeding that progress? Uh, well, I would say there's... So we live in a culture that is... I talk about oppressive positivity, like that everything is supposed to be happy all the time, uh, the well-curated social media highlight reel needs to look a certain way, and so that then when people have intense feelings, uh, they don't know what to do with them, and they feel like, oh, ugh, there's something wrong with me, mm -hmm. and I shouldn't feel this way, or I should know better, or I'm smart enough. Why is this bothering me? And, you know, if it was about brains, if it was about how we should be, uh, I'd be out of business pretty fast. So, so having that belief that, like, oh, I'm not entitled to this intensity, they're like, I mean, you know, whether or not you're entitled, it's happening. And the other thing is that, like, you probably didn't bring that intensity on yourself. Like, this is, your circuits are overloaded. So why don't we work with what is? and help you learn how to manage what is and put it in its place. So I'd say that, you know, the people that are already like resistant to just the existence of this feeling is intolerable and there's something wrong with me, they have a hard time getting into their story because they're spending a lot of time editing, a lot of time trying to make it right, trying to not take up too much space. You know, in my office, like, that's the gift. I often call it, it's like being by yourself, but just a little bit better. Because um, I get out of the way so you can take up all the space. Well, I've, I've heard, too, that um, it's often people seek treat, help therapy when they are stuck. Yes. When they seem to be repeating the same patterns of behavior or, or thinking, and they can't get out of that. And so therapy is a way for you to try to get unstuck. And I like how you you said that you have this space. Like, uh, you know, our other dear friend Gundel, who's who's also uh, in in treatment or is a treatment practitioner, um, says that 
she holds space. Yes. This is this is this is your space to be in where you get to, you know, say and do and think and emote uh, in a safe space. And um, which reminds me of something else that I've heard from individuals that are have lived and live ex- living experience with addiction and substance use disorders is a lot of that trauma is around their their feeling of lack of safety. And you were kind of alluding to that earlier, where it's this sense of like, you know, experiencing trauma is like your 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 body mounts a massive stress response, alarm, 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 and you're feeling unsafe. And PTSD is really that manifestation of you're constantly feeling unsafe, even in environments that should be safe, right? Like you were saying at the school play. And yeah. so therapy, you're 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 working with them in in creating that safe space. So, do you find perhaps there is a little bit of struggle with some individuals of letting down their their guard and and uh, you know letting themselves like allowing themselves to feel space? Like, do you see that this is or feel safe? Well, so I mean, you're hitting on like two of the hallmark symptoms of PTSD. The first being hypervigilance, where people are constantly on high alert, like everything is a threat assessment. And so helping people figure out how to tame that response so that they're not perpetually looking for threat. And, uh, you know, that's part of the work. The other thing is that with trauma, it changes our perspective on the universe. Um, Oftentimes, prior to trauma, people feel... The normal kind of invincible, you know, like, yeah, sure, bad things happen, but like the really awful things are not going to happen to me. And then after a traumatic event happens, for those that PTSD sets in for, there is this like the universe is not safe. No one is trustworthy. Uh, You know, there's even like an absence of being able to have happy or joyful feelings at things that you would ordinarily quite enjoy. So... Helping people shift their thinking around that to to start to question like, well, okay, like really is, you know, is your small town in Ontario really going to be a target of some kind of massive attack? Likely not. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. How, about, how about we test this hypothesis and you go to the corner store? And so people start to have these Mm -hmm. experiences in which they go out into the world and they use some tools that help them regulate their heart rate and get through it so that they're not triggered or I mean they're not sent into kind of the the flashback or the you know I call it being bounced out of your window of affect tolerance we can all tolerate Mm -hmm. a certain amount and in that window we're processing we're working through things once we get too activated game's over like it's like a panic yeah, attack. Like you just yeah. have to wait for it to end. That's that's it. Yeah. Can can we do anything in a state of absolute terror? No. Can we study? Can we have a mean, meaningful conversation with our spouse? Can we parent? No. If we're feeling that abject terror. Well, sometimes you can't even hours. walk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, are there individuals that you see or clients that... In that assessment piece, maybe you don't uncover or there, there's no discovery of a trauma. And then throughout the process of a therapeutic relationship and alliance, you something comes out. Does that ever happen? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's often there's like two camps, I find. 
um, <clears throat> around this. There are some people that by the end of the first session, they spill and they say, oh, I was never going to say that out loud to anybody. I can't believe I said it today. And so, you know, they come in wanting to work on other things, but thinking this is too big. I can't do it. And then there's other people that after, you know, a number of sessions, I mean, sometimes it's three or four, sometimes it's like six months to a year later, they're like, okay, I'm finally ready to tell you the thing. And I mean, you know, usually I can tell, oh, hmm, all the pieces don't really go together here. There's something that hasn't come right. up yet. But if it doesn't come up naturally, me going for the jugular is not going to make it better. Like, I mean, that bounces someone out of the window of affect tolerance. And it re-traumatizes them and pushes them away from therapy. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I may not be everybody's last therapist, but part of my role is to make sure that therapy isn't terrible so that if mm -hmm. people leave my care, they still are willing to go into care with somebody else. One of the last things I want, I want to pick up on this, you were talking about the highlight reel of social media and yeah. people having this sense of like, um, invincibility and trauma kind of like blasts that all open. And what I see among, um, you know, like I would say the privileged class of individuals, like people who have not experienced like massive traumatic events, um, but may have experienced something, small t trauma, um, is, is a sense of I should be grateful for my life, right? And I, I still remember, uh, yes, one of your blog posts that you wrote, and I still to this day, I will I will use this statement. Um, so thank you for that, is don't beat yourself with a gratitude stick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this notion that we're not allowed to feel sad or bad or angry um, because I should feel grateful. Look, I have a roof over my head. I have food on my plate. Uh, I have a job that's secure I you know I have no right to feel sad mad bad angry um, well it's not so... cute <laughs> <laughs> so you know could you could you maybe rephrase a bit of you know that blog post for our listeners because I think there are a, a number of us out there that just might be having a few multi traumatic moments in our lives and don't allow us ourselves the the gift of therapy allowing allow ourselves the gift of processing that in a safe space with somebody that is compa a compassionate and neutral uh, observer to that well it's funny because you talk about it um, in terms of like the privileged class but throughout my career I've worked in big cities small towns rural Iowa, rural Nova Scotia, downtown Toronto. Like I've seen a bunch. And what comes back to me is that regardless of, uh, regardless of people's life experiences, you know, I still hear people say things like, well, he doesn't hit me. He doesn't drink too much. Uh, he's got most of his hair. I guess this is a good relationship. And like... <laughs> The ways through which we are, oh, we encourage ourselves not to want more, not to have expectations. Oh, if you have expectations, you're going to be disappointed. Well, newsflash, we all have expectations. Whether we want to or not, they exist. And so all this, you know, whether it's with gratitude or oppressive positivity, 
It's this idea that if you have feelings, well, there's something wrong. You shouldn't have feelings. You shouldn't be too big. Lord knows I have struggled with trying not to be too big most of my life. But, you know, finally I've arrived. Finally, I'm like, okay, you know what? If I feel it, it's okay. If I don't feel it, it's also okay. Like, things just are. So trying to minimize them or trying to blow them out of proportion, whatever direction you go in, a lot of this is about fit into the box, make it look cute, uh, Photoshop it. You know, everyone needs to be positive all the time. That way you can never get hurt. Eh, eh, begin again. Like, it's all about trying not to get hurt, trying not to be vulnerable, trying not to connect, because there's a risk of loss. Loss is a part of life. Like, there's, there's just no getting around it. And so we can say, if you do all the right things, if you say all the right things, if you wear the right things, if you eat the right things, if you go to the right restaurants, then your life is going to be good. I'll tell you, it lines my pockets. Like, really? I mean, this is how I make my living, is people realizing that that is not true. And now, like, WTF, how am I going to, like, what do I do next? I, I really thought that if I did all the things, I would be happy, and I'm not. And on that note, minding the brain, listeners, Matthew and I are giving you permission to feel and to be vulnerable. And it has been an absolute pleasure to have you in my studio today. Mm, thank uh, I you. think there's no better gift than seeing somebody, seeing you, witness you develop your career and to come to the space where you are living your greatness. And I think our listeners will agree with me when. I, I say that hearing you speak about your profession and, and how you work with individuals who have experienced trauma or not, that I see that this is a gift that you have. And um, I'm really blessed to hear you um, today speak about the wisdom of your practice. Uh, so uh, oh, for Hanny. all our- <laughs> like we've come a long way since 18, huh? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, so if our listeners want to find you, where would they find you? Uh, best place is my website, www.matthewrippyyoung.com. Uh, I've also taken to doing, uh, most days, I do a little one-minute video on my Instagram, uh, psychmatthew, P-S-Y-C-H-M-A-T-T-H-E-W. Uh, while I talk about the highlight reel on the social media, let's face facts, like, we're all on this stuff. So why not use it for good, Superman? And we'll be posting all these links on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website for those of you that would like to find out more information. Thanks again, Matthew. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and made possible, in part, by the brain's dopaminergic system, without which our host would have no ambition to do anything, much less create a podcast. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Mindingthebrain.com